Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're coming, and we ain't backing down. We don't need a bunch of cats in here. Looking in the mirror. I'm bitterly disappointed with the officiating today. Guys being dudes. And they run through our like through a tin horn, man. Thank you, Lee. Uh, One of my favorite things to do in the annals of Split Zone Duo history is uh, basically take a hard right turn off the top of the show because I haven't talked about where I want to go with the show uh, with the co-hosts and definitely didn't put it in the show notes. So, uh, fellas, are you guys ready for Saudi money to infiltrate college sports? S-E-C. S-E-C. That's where you think it's going to go? Alex, are you <laughs> so ready? There's a small ag school in College Station, Texas, that uh, feels like the, feels like the entryway to the continental United well, they're States. They're already oh, in business we will, with Cutter, we, I believe. We will, exactly. we will get to that in a second. Um, if for the uninitiated, and I'm not going to, we're not a golf podcast. Our friends at the Shotgun Start and our friends at No Laying Up certainly are. Go uh, listen to them. They did great work yesterday on the breaking golf news. I will do this in like 15 seconds or less. Basically, you've heard about the PGA Tour. You've heard about the Live Golf Tour. The Live Golf Tour, tour is invested in and run by the Saudi Investment Fund. Um, I believe it, the acronym for it is the PIF. They've been in sort of like a cold war over the soul of golf uh, and the future of golf for the last, call it 18 months, two to three years, whatever. Um, long story short, yesterday they announced a merger that nobody saw coming sources tell me seriously sources tell me like tiger and rory didn't know greg norman who runs the live tour nominally like didn't know um basically the pga tours commission and the head of the saudi investment fund like got lunch played golf and decided that their interests were somewhat aligned you know what's good for the goose is good for the gander sort of way anyway long story short and where i think i'm not like i'm really not kidding here where i think your antenna probably should be up in a distant future or maybe a not so distant future here over the next few years is what's going to happen, which is basically uh, the Saudi investment fund and the PGA tour are going to get together. They're going to form a for-profit entity. They are going to pump all of their commercial interests into that for-profit entity. And they are going to take a broad look at all of the things that they all operate and figure out which makes sense and which doesn't, what ne- what needs new investment and what doesn't. Some of that, as far as the PGA Tour is concerned, is this program that the PGA Tour has called PGA Tour U, which is essentially uh, a pipeline to get the best college golfers by the way, which currently reside in Gainesville, Florida, in case you haven't heard, Florida's men's golf team just won both the individual and team national championship 
last week. Just so you're just so you understand it's good to see y'all. It's good to see y'all doing well in Olympic sports, at least. Uh, hey, it's about building a total athletic department, uh, Godfrey. It's not just about football. Wow. Unbelievable from wow, the SEC sounds, guy. That sounds like uh, the Pac-12. <laughs> let me know how that let me know how that plan works out for you. Um, so long story short, the PGA Tour has this PGA Tour U program, and it's a pipeline for the best college golfers to get onto the Corn Ferry Tour, which is the minor league uh, PGA Tour and the PGA Tour itself. I, I'm just saying, seriously, Alex, like they're two steps removed from like funding NIL at this point in time. Like I'm yeah. not kidding. No, it's, I well, mean, look, the SEC has always wanted to cut the head off of journalists anyway. So I feel like this is a natural partnership. I mean, I can't look, there's, there's a tyrannical outfit in the middle East that literally kills and decapitates dissidents. And I feel like the Southeastern conference is poised for that kind of totalitarian rule. This makes sense. Let's get these guys in bed officially. Godfrey's not wrong, but also in, in complete seriousness, without even without even a wink of the eye, I don't think it's insane at all that at some point in the coming years, big businesses, maybe including something like the PIF, I don't know if so- sovereign wealth funds would be interested in this or not, but that big businesses might buy stakes in the business operations of college football teams. Like it's, yeah. it's not ridiculous. Larry Scott, yes, exactly. Speaking of the exactly. Pac-12, Larry Scott like tried he this tried with China. This. We're not kidding. Larry Scott attempted to basically form a, a new company that would take on equity investors in the Pac-12's media operations and media rights and didn't, Chinese didn't money, happen. Saudi money. This is inter- it, didn't it's happen. It's like they have this. It's like they have this connection. You guys, well, I wonder what that connection is. Didn't happen for the Pac-12. Uh, Larry Scott was not long for this world as an administrator. But like, it, it strikes me. <laughs> thank as, you for thank you for that addendum. It strikes me that someone at some point is going to sell a big stake of something in college sports to somebody. Like, it just kind of is the way sports are going. So I. It would be naive to to think that it absolutely couldn't happen here. I'm not sure about all the Twitter commentary about, oh, you know, I think I saw someone be like, oh, is the UAE is going to buy a 15% stake in Clemson? Maybe. Maybe. Okay. I mean, maybe. Yeah, whoa, whoa. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> you know, if the UAE wanted Clemson, they could just get the whole damn thing. Uh, you know. even, even the NBA has like distance itself from Chinese investment to a degree because of the horrific optics involved. I think that's going to reverse. I, I but, think we're going to see the reverse. But for Saudi money, especially like the path that Saudi money has taken to try and clean itself has been the WWE and Vince McMahon, right. one of the most horrible people, not not dead or in prison for his crimes. And and by the way, Godfrey, then, WWE then a, uses a lot of former college athletes in yes. its promotions. Then golf which is a whole saga unto itself where Greg Norman was like, look, they may or may not have decapitated a journalist. They did. Um, he did that in a press conference. Godfrey's yes, not kidding. This that isn't happened a joke. in a press conference. Yeah. I, should, yeah. I, I need to honestly say, I, I guess I need to mention because every comic book is somebody's first. I, I'm talking about, because uh, I, I write for the Washington Post, uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, shortest version of this possible on a college football podcast, basically a a, uh, a writer a journalist a commentator on middle eastern affairs was kidnapped and killed and 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 decapitated uh and it was done by the saudi government and they just kind of shrugged at it and so there's that perception of the saudis and their money by the way they also funded 9-11 does anyone remember 9-11 
I know you guys were young, but do you remember that when they like flew planes into American buildings? Anybody? The PGA, the PGA Tours Commissioner and Jay Monahan remembers that because this time last year, yeah. him and Jim Nance were talking about the 9-11 families and, yeah, and that yeah, fallout and crazy. all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then yesterday at a press conference, he was like, well, you know, I only spoke to the information I was armed with at the time, so which I is just, real fast. To- I, I don't want to bog us down. All of the people who are like hashtag never forget the sort of like there's a particular kind of neoconservatism that ran through the last 20 years. And I'm a little bit older than you guys. So I was in college when this happened. All of those people go to the LIV events. And like, do you not realize like it? this isn't even hard to trace? It's not even a paper trail. It's one move up the fucking Candyland board. And it's why, again, I want to be clear that like. When I saw that, when I obviously me and Alex are, are really into golf world, golf media, kind of more so than you, Godfrey. Like when I started listening to some of our favorite commentators talk about how, you know, they're going to assess every part of the business, like college sports brain in me was like, oh, yeah, that like they're one going to be in some not so distant future, one, one and a half steps away from legitimate at least being able to reach out and touch college sports. Yeah, I think and we I just, do think, and I do think that this is the beginning or a beginning. I, I guess WWE would be kind of the formally begin formal, but beginning. they haven't actually but closed like, that deal. They, 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 they might want to. Right. But right. But Alex, what I'm saying is basically like, I think this is a probably continuation is the right word of American business interest palatability with them. And I think that, if you wouldn't sports wash if it didn't work and that's yeah. where i think you you come to okay wwe check pga tour check those are very you would say kind of oh they're also dumping a lot Americana. of money into video games right Look. so what's next is my question i'll basically. tell you what's next and that's when i go to college sports we just found out how they're going to get that buyout together for jimbo ultimately that's- ultimately I don't think any part of sport is really going to be sheltered from the general world of authoritarian oligarch money. It might have started in like 2003 when Roman Abramovich bought Chelsea. Richard Tottenham fan, he'll love he'll love yeah. putting the blame on Chelsea for this. Uh, of course, it's hit all of major soccer. It's hit golf. It's hit the staging of the Olympics and the world cup. It, it's just, it's eventually it might touch the NFL. I know the NFL owners like to think of themselves as like this staid, respectable group, but it's going to get everywhere. And I don't think college sports will be high in line because it's still nominally a collegiate amateur enterprise. But I agree that it would be naive to assume that this world of money will never get to us. So we can look forward to that. Uh, Richard, in other exciting news, politically speaking, this is uh, a big Washington DC NCAA week. Am I correct to say? Yeah. Um, and it, look, yes. Um, basically the sec has like an annual, you know, <laughs> I almost said that sec has an annual March on Washington. <laughs> Not wrong. Do they, Not wrong. Do they march back? Do they just march backwards? Is it like um, if you did it back, if you just, if you just put it in reverse, uh, Godfrey, that was in January. It's June. Um, the, SEC annually goes to Washington to lobby their interests on Capitol Hill. Um, I would say this is probably more um, of a pressing uh, party in D.C. this week because of what happened in California last week. Uh, Long story short, the California House, California House passed a bill 
that uh, is about athlete revenue sharing, uh, student athlete revenue sharing in the state of California. That is now into the California Senate, uh, and they will decide it over the next few weeks. Last year, this happened, and it died in the California Senate. There were some Title IX concerns that a caucus of uh, it may have died in the House. Excuse me. It died in the California legislative process because a, a delegation of women legislators raised Title IX concerns. Apparently, whatever those concerns are, they've been soothed, whatever. We move on in the process. It's in the California Senate. Um, uh, this is another one of the things that has gotten college uh, athletics administrators spooked about how to steer the future of what I think all three of us think is coming, uh, employment, some sort of arms around NIL, et cetera, et cetera. The thought process is that should California actually pass this bill and the governor sign it into law, then other states would do it. Similarly to the NIL race that happened in 2021, when like one state passed a law and then, you know, check, 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 a bunch of other states passed a law because it's college sports and we do business. We can't do business 50 different ways. And then we ended up doing business 50 different ways. Anyway, never forget um, this. Never forget this. People in the Southern footprint, people in the Midwest like to thumb their noses at California and the PAC 12 for not being big time <laughs> enough in college sports. You know, who's the reason why we have NIL in college sports now? It's a couple of state legislators from California who got the entire rest of college sports to suddenly act like adults and play big boy football economically and pay players, you know, through third parties. It was California that did that. But that's the South didn't want actually want that. Let's be clear about this. In the next couple of years, guys, there's going to be a we talk about sports washing. There's going to be sort of a PR uh, power washing. Like I mean, hard, like getting barf and tree sap off your cement driveway, kind of like blasting that the SEC is going to be an innovator and a leader in compensation for student athletes. This is me telling you as the bagman guy, the SEC was completely and totally fine with the previous system because they say, had re- some would say they had refined the black were, market. <laughs> I was going to say some they would were say they were already it. an they industry were, leader in athlete compensation. And they were really good at it in a way that no other if we're just sort of lumping things by conference like, yes, there are bagmen in the Midwest. I hate to break it to you, um, but, you know, by writ large. If you were to take this above board, that meant more work for the SEC. Now, they're doing the work. They're raising the money for sure. But in the old system, the South and the Midwest, mm. they didn't want it. They didn't want to change. Steven, no I'm going to ban wanted you. to pay these players. I'm going to ban you from press boxes for saying that. Also, Steven, the Michigan fan base, some, some Michigan fans are fine paying players. I think we, like Michigan is probably. Gonna, Where are they? Can, can I find these fans? I think I think that you are getting stuck in late late 2010s internet arguing i think michigan is fine paying players or every published author that's ever come from michigan or all the journalists that work around in a uh i can't use any of these phrases that i want to because there, okay. there is a profanity limit here i'm sorry oh. where are these people have i met them i'll pick a different bone with michigan quickly is there a john u bacon book about this <laughs> there may be quick digression actually a different complaint about michigan and, and uh, i am bogging us down before we move on i stopped they're through. flexible in order to self-elate themselves they are a flexible fan base so maybe i just haven't found them yet i stopped through ann arbor the other week i was on my way home yeah. from a lovely trip in michigan kind of went around the state of michigan during our spring break and i was with my girlfriend, who isn't a college sports person, but I was like, all right, you know, we're walking to the big house. Good for her. Yeah, good for her, right? I was like, I love to see stadiums. I've talked about this. I will try to walk through a door at any stadium if I'm in a place where there is one and just check it out. 
And I go to the big house. I checked in with some of our friends on the Discord channel that is dedicated to Split Zone Duo. And I was like, hey, you know, where's the best door to go in here? I got a great tip. I got to the door and there was a recruiting visit going through. And then some Michigan coach (laughs) shut the door on me and I was unable to breach the belly of the beast. I had to go and look at the field through the tunnel, uh, which, hey, the tunnel at Michigan, uh, very secure in this case. I know there's been some questions about the security of that tunnel during games that people have raised, (laughs) but it was extremely secure from me being able to get through it and walk on the field. So. Uh, congratulations, Michigan, on locking me out. Michigan State's Michigan State's own Alex Kirschner. Uh So look, I, we have a Discord. Where we're, where we're at right now is this: um, they are so it, all the SEC is having a party on Washington this week. Um, Arizona, look, I know you may laugh at this, Godfrey, but this is a real statement here. Uh, Arizona's athletic director also is having a a group of college sports administrators on Capitol Hill uh, as well to talk. So it's not just the SEC folks. I I think Clemson's athletic director is going to be there, Clemson's collective um, and a few others. It's a thing that's happening is what I'm telling you. Um, All of this. And I want to, I want to boil down what it is as usual. When we have this conversation, all of this is, a way for the NCAA to continue the basically like tentacle of its legal strategy, the NCAA's legal strategy in all of their lawsuits at the federal level right now about the future of whether it's college sports employment or what have you revenue sharing or what have you is chill. We'll handle it. That's the legal strategy. And the wheel handle it (laughs) is the the wheel handle. It is we will lobby Congress in one way or another to try to get this done, basically, where we have more of a locus of control, where we can lobby the lawmakers themselves with direct one-to-one relationships, et cetera. Now, I do think, as my colleague uh, Ross Dellinger at Sports Illustrated quoted Tom McMillan, who's the ch- uh, chair of Lead One, which is That's the, the Athletic Director's lobbying um, firm, there is a kind of a deadline here. Uh, which is basically nothing happens in Washington. Well, you would say nothing happened in Washington any, uh, ever, but definitely nothing happens in Washington during an election cycle, right? Legislatively. Yes. Just, right. So I think we can all understand that the clock is ticking here if, if there is something to be done this year or imminently. Richard, thank you for bringing that up because I think it's an important point that sometimes the college sports media doesn't talk about. Uh, I, the, the circles that I, the, the circles that I run in, in DC are not like the Capitol Hill press circles. I'm sure you'll, sure you'll be shocked. That's not where I live in town. It's not really what I do. No, you're more of the, you're more of the lobbying circle, yeah, right? I'm the you're, yeah, you're yeah, hanging out with the guy. Big yeah. You know, guy. there will be, a, there will be a buddy of mine who is an editor at Politico, who is a rabid, rabid college football podcast consumer and a, a dear friend of ours and listener of ours who like, whenever we'll talk about this. And he comes out, comes back from his day job editing Politico. He laughs his ass off at the notion, like the NCAA thinks they're going to get some huge, transformative, controversial, yes. like groundbreaking bill passed. Like, have you looked at what year it is? Like, and what? And I will like, say, Alex, I, I, to I'm Alex's be a- point here, to Alex's point here, really quick. If you some of what they're doing, if you watch the um, the NIL uh, 
hearing that happened in Congress. This was probably about a month, a month or so ago. Like a lot of that stuff was like baby's first NIL. Like some of what they're doing also meeting with lawmakers is like, hey, lawmaker, this is what a scholarship. It, like, yeah, you would be surprised at how not like how ground floor some of these discussions. Members really of Congress don't know anything. And sometimes I, their staff doesn't doesn't sufficiently fill them in. I think I, I, I agree more than you realize with your editor buddy at Politico, which, by the way, uh, I guess. Thank you for doing yeah, that job. Do you that. Just, Please do you just, clip that. Do you just take a crying game shower every day no, after, after work? Like anyway. I don't believe the face value of, of the transaction here. What I mean is that I, I believe that the ex sort of NCAA cartel establishment, as well as leading athletic directors and commissioners are Alex very well aware of the incredibly slow process, the sort of buzzards picking apart of bills and, you know, how pork barrel works, et cetera. I think they're completely aware of this. In fact, I think they're counting on it because I think they want to, does, and by the way, I'm building this opinion based on their behavior the last 10 years. They drug their feet. They drug their feet. They drug their feet through mandates. They drug their feet after the Supreme Court. They have shown a, a, a willing, a purposeful, a committed and deliberate inertia in getting anything done. And now they have found the great American excuse, which is we will let the government handle it. So by letting the government handle it in finger quotes, they know that the status quo probably won't be upended or changed in any significant way for another long period of time because of the way this wonderful land works. I think they're counting on it and I think they're totally fine with it. Now, what's funny is when you get to the rank and file inside these buildings, people are exhausted. They're going to burn the labor force out, even millionaire coaches. I'm not kidding. If they no, don't I, do something about yeah. portal NIL. In fact, I had someone uh, at a power five school very eloquently say this to me this week, and it was perfect. And it, it made total sense. He said, we don't mind NIL and we don't mind the portal. This is someone on the coaching side. What we mind is NIL and the portal. And what he <laughs> means by that is that independently, both of these concepts make sense. Both of these concepts can be adjusted for. But with zero oversight and zero regulation and absolutely no governance whatsoever, combining these two entities have created a completely unchecked and unregulated free market, especially the, the double and triple windows. That's the one that's absolutely breaking souls right now is that rosters are not complete as we record this in early June. And I, I like in look, the, I, I understand you listener of this podcast here. Offensive coordinator makes seven hundred thousand dollars. Offensive coordinator shouldn't be bitching about dealing with NILs. I, I'm sorry. I understand where that opinion comes from. I get it. I really do. These people are being burned out by having to deal with this. And we can talk about. And understand the fact that the player should have been paid 150 years ago. Everybody in this podcast agrees with this. But there's a specific check and a balance in pro sports to paying players. It's called, in broad strokes, it's called a personnel department, man. Like, it, you as a linebacker's coach do not deal with the salary cap and, 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 and paying the guy and trading the guy and all yeah. this kind of stuff. Where in college, you do. It it changed. And so when Godfrey speaks to it's burning people out, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the linebackers coach who called me on July 5th last year and was like, yeah, I'm kind of thinking about getting out of the game, maybe because 
we had a, a guy portal on July 3rd and I spent the whole fourth in the office looking at transfer portal linebacker film when my kid and my wife went to the in-laws. Like, again, I understand that person is paid a certain amount of money to coach football and it's a dream job and yada, yada, yada. That doesn't mean that doesn't suck. Totally fair. There's also just, there's no performance evaluate. Like the reason why there's so much anxiety right now is that no one feels secure because no one can, it used to be that you would build a roster, you would go through recruitment. And I, you know, I haven't weighed in with Bud and those guys at uh, all the different, like, you know, rivals and on three and, and two, four, seven and all that stuff. But like, to me, it's a house of cards because those rankings are starting to mean less and less because the, the volatility of the actual inventory, the whole, like I, I I'm, I don't want to be that foreboding and I know we need to change subjects, Alex, but like no one feels comfortable right now. No one feels confident. And, and I'm talking about nobody. I'm talking about the highest levels. There might be four or five completely like, well-funded power programs that are competing for national titles. And this is where I get in, in very angry at my colleagues in the media who are like, if you lean into just promoting that, you're betraying 90% of the sport because everyone else is very confused and they don't understand the future of the sport that they're, they're professionals in. But yeah, like George is okay right now. Ohio State's going to be okay right now. That well, list is t- so didn't short. didn't take any portal guys. Like that's George right, didn't take that any list portal is guys. So and guess, short. Who, guess who was on the roster, for instance, exactly. and why they didn't right. take any portal guys. So, so, to, so to wave your hand at like three or four SEC programs and then like Ohio State or even Michigan, like that is a willful and I think I think a deliberate blindness. It, it just, we're, Alex, save me because I feel like we're going to spiral off into. This Washington thing is yet another example of kicking it down the road. And I, I'm seeing now a spread of structural rot in the sport because no one stood up and said the thing and did the thing to fix it. Godfrey, you mentioned kicking it down the road. Let's move on to a yes, quick sir. news whip around. The SEC certainly kicking it down the road. They are staying at an eight-game schedule. This news is about a week old as we record this. But uh, Richard, you got three words for me to describe the SEC's decision-making staying at eight games? It's ridiculous. Oh, I thought that's a contraction. Let me help so you. Let me help you. It is scared yeah. be- to compete. Compete. Yes. Uh, I, I like it, look. I'm. I, <laughs> I'm not going to do this for like ten minutes. I'm. I'm. I really am not. Make it. Do this make it short minutes. enough that it can fit it into is, an Instagram clip for me. Go off. It is absolutely behind the scenes absurd that they are staying at eight games. I understand that they have basically put a Band-Aid, which is to say we're going to preserve primary and secondary rivals. We'll come back to it in a couple of years. They are going to come back to it, and they are going to go to nine games. They're Mike's, going to do it. Mike's there, life would have it, never let this happen. There That's not is a, joke. a former SEC athletic director who has been attributed with a quote, what will be done eventually should be done immediately. Well, they did not do the thing immediately here in going to nine games, which again, they're everybody knows they are going to do. It's a money thing, man. It's to- a money thing. It's a money thing from the top. First of all, <sighs> it is patently absurd to me that you're going to sit here and say, we're worried that we're worried that maybe we'll p- at the top end. We're worried that our top end schools may pick up a loss and it may affect their playoff entrance or their playoff eligibility in an expanded 12 team playoff when everyone with half a brain knows that the sec will just say oh 
10 and two Auburn lost to Georgia and Alabama. Well, those are good losses and those are better losses and, and a better schedule than a 12 and 0, 11 and one pack 12 team. They should get the bid. Everybody knows that's going to happen. That's what they've been doing for the last 25 years in whatever postseason system we've had at the bottom. It's about bowl eligibility. It's about teams that are scared that they can't get to six wins so that they can't get a bowl check. That is what it is. It is not just the top. It's Alabama, you know, whoever. It's not just the top. It's not just the bottom worried about this. It is a coalition of SEC schools that have come together to feign, feign concern about going to nine games. They're going to go to nine games anyway when we come back to this either next year or the year after. They should have just done it now. It's ridiculous. It's not 16 equal seats at the table just to take you inside that room. It's not 16. it's, it's also not 16 for now. Texas and right. Oklahoma can't vote. But it, I'm telling you, like for years, there have there has been sort of a, a, an influence trickle and, and and a political sort of structure to it, where a lot some of these younger ads have worked for current sitting ads. I can give examples right now, but I, I'm going to try and be nice this week. Um, and they also go, presidents. Remember, presidents yeah, are in on this. Too, and they right? go they go on loyalty lines, and they'll go with like power programs. Shockingly are controlling more of the room than, you know, your Vanderbilt's and Ole Misses and Mississippi States and stuff. So it's that it's look, they're going to need a Sam Cunningham type situation to be, to be dragged into the future. That's the way the Southeastern conference operates. They're going to have to have something that breaks their back and forces them to, Godfrey, to get with the times. You want to, do you want to do It's a very different situation, but I understand the analogy you're making. Do you want to explain the Sam Cunningham thing that led a certain Google. SEC I know, I mean, program look, to change? Look, yeah, Google it. Time to do Google. some history yeah, lesson. Google it. Yeah. 1970, yeah. right? Uh, Sam Time Cunningham, USC, Sam Cunningham, USC, Alabama will get you there. It'll bring you to a variety what? of articles. Whether it's apocryphal or not, it is an analogy that Godfrey is making. That makes sense. By the way, I don't think Greg Sankey is happy about this, to be honest with you. No, I don't think he has control. I don't think he has control of his constituents, which is alarming. And they need to portray unification. That's what made the SEC so strong. And they're no longer doing that. That's this is I'm I'm a little concerned that and I'm not being a dick. Well, I'm always being a dick, but like I'm there. There's some there's some uh, genuine impartial observation to me being a dick this time, because as I've told this story before, it's not just a campfire tale. The reason the sec grew in strength and the big 12 didn't because you can go back in time and find in the like late nineties, early aughts when the big 12 was a really strong, powerful conference. Everyone was equal at the table. They spoke as one and Slive kept them in order. And ever since Sankey took over, you could see schools getting out of line factions and feuds starting within between rivals and this stuff gets public that never happened before and now you're adding on two really quiet really easy to work with people in oklahoma and texas damn steven i'm this i'm this banning has you. to be addressed i'm banning you from the press box again you're gonna cut my head off again it's a couple times this episode that you've been banned from the Drawn SEC press and box. quartered okay so that's the story for this week uh we have as you can probably tell by the timestamps on your podcast app of choice or on your YouTube, youtube.com slash at splits and duo, uh, that there's still a lot of time left in this episode because we are going to roll something for you uh, that is is new and fresh and that we're excited to share with you. But before we do that, I uh, want to share some exciting news with you first about our dear partners at Homefield Apparel. If you go to homefieldapparel.com and use the promo code SCD20, that's SCD20, you are going to get 20% off your first order at the finest premium vintage officially licensed collegiate apparel house in all of the land. Also, we are having, it's 
wow, just over a week away, fellas, as we record this, mm-hmm. uh, our first live show ever in Washington, D.C. Go to splitzoneduolive.com for tickets for that one. Uh, and Patreon subscribers, you, if you check your in- uh, inboxes or the Patreon page, you'll be able to find a code for $10 off your ticket there. That's a couple months of your Patreon subscription discounted right there. Uh, and Homefield uh, is going to be with us at that show uh, and offering a very exciting little set of goodies, um, some virtual goodies, some physical goodies for people who attend there. So we're going to have a very good time together. But Stephen, June 15th in D.C., is not any longer the only Split Zone Duo live show on the radar. We're going on tour. We're not going on tour. We just, have a, we, we just have another live show. We're not going on tour. What you guys doing Labor Day weekend? September 1st, Tom's Watch Bar in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a Friday night. Friday night. Thursday night is the Nebraska-Minnesota game in Minneapolis. Saturday afternoon in the Viking Stadium, the name of which escapes me, but I don't care because it's U.S. Bank, I think. Is that right? It's cool looking. I don't know. I know the Saints didn't play any defense. That's what I know happened in that stadium. Uh, Is North Dakota State (laughs) and Eastern Washington that afternoon? By the way, what an on-brand SZD event than an FCS Titan uh, heavyweight matchup. North Dakota State and Eastern Washington are playing on Saturday. On Friday night at Tom's Watch Bar, September 1st, split zone duo live alex i'm told that if you are a patron of this fine show you should have something in your inbox a code perhaps yep between the time that we record this and the time that you listen to it we are sending out a code for splits and duo patrons at patreon.com slash sed you'll get it in your email uh, it will have the same promo code for a discount off the dc tickets will also be a discount off of the minneapolis tickets so we would love to see you there if one were so inclined you could sign up and become a $5 patron at splitzoneduo.com. Get six, six, I'm saying six, one plus five bonus episodes a month, even in June, even in August, even in January, into your feed. You could also, for just five bucks, get a $10 discount on your ticket. Sounds like we're just handing money away, Alex. What the hell are we doing? Arguably, Richard, you're losing money if you don't do that and then if come to the live show. you don't become a patron at splitzoneduo.com. Yeah, sorry. It's about investment. I'm yeah. a person who, you know, Alex bigwigs with, you know, DC lobbyists. I bigwig with titans of finance down in uh, down on Wall Street. And they told me that it is not a smart business decision to uh, to to hold back investment uh, in split zone duo LLC. It, it, you're just you're missing an opportunity to be in on the ground floor. I, I look it. Yeah. Their words, not mine. And Richard wants to be clear that he doesn't mean that in any actionable sort of way. But it just no is what it is. <laughs> Nokia and Tires. Nokia and Tires is sponsoring this event. There are going to be uh, some special Nokian things at this event. We'll leave it at that. We want to thank our friends at Nokia and Tires. And by the way, if you're listening, I know a lot of you listening were such good members of the team that you went and bought Nokia and Tires last year. Come to a Nokian event now. We've got a Nokian live event, Splits on Duo Nokian. We are in Minneapolis, September 1st. It's a Friday night. Come hang out with us at Tom's Watch Bar. By the way, if you don't know what Tom's Watch Bar is, check them out. It is, uh, I would I would dare say, the ideal place to gather in public to watch a sporting event on television. Significant amount of TVs with sporting events. Uh, it's the same link. Significant. Sp- Split Zone Duo Live. Dot com for tickets for the Minneapolis and the DC shows. That's June 15th in DC, Friday, September 1st in Minneapolis. Alex, 
We have talked throughout this show today about what college football might have been if they paid people 150 years ago or Sam Cunningham or the SEC dragging itself into modernity or the fact that you could completely ignore morals and scruples because it better serves your current, uh, some might say, prejudice culture. Let's talk about Ole Miss. Oh, yes. Uh, quick note. Uh, we have started and, and I think our, I hope our Patreon subscribers are enjoying this very much. We have started season two of Dead Letters, the Splitson Duo series about squandered potential in college football or squandered greatness in college football. Uh, you might have seen on this free feed last week, we played the Nebraska episode from last season. We've actually made some updates, some changes to the series this year that we think make it even sharper. Uh, but we have done two episodes so far this season, FAMU and Ole Miss, uh, focusing on two programs that in very, very different ways started to suffer at the time that college football integrated uh, just in very, very different ways. FAMU suffering and Ole Miss suffering. One more self-inflicted than the other. Uh, so you can get that at patreon.com slash SCD. Uh, it's a scripted-ish set of episodes. We've done two. There will be four more. Next one, we're going to take a bye there. The next one is coming in two weeks, but they will be continuing throughout the summer um, as a six-episode season two. So we're very excited about that. Uh, and fellas, I'm also extremely excited to play what we're about to play. Have I explained to you what this is, or are you just kind of letting me go blind, or like like kind of going blind and letting me... No, I run this. I think you should explain it for the audience. I I know that you did this interview, but you know I, I, you know me and Godfrey definitely know what it is, right? We we know every word that you said in the interview, uh, definitely with it, your it, subject. It could be um, what we know. It could be you and Noam Chomsky building pipe bombs. I have no but idea. But I think actually. the audience, I think the audience would be really well served hearing you know the, a trailer for it before we kind of yeah. jump into it. Richard and I have definitely been paying attention. So we like to keep an eye here on where college football could be going several years out, even many years out from, from the present. And to do that, you have to keep some eye on what is happening with the actual colleges that host college football. And there's a thing coming in higher ed that a lot of people in the industry are pretty worried about these days. We've gotten tips about it. It's been written a lot in the industry press that covers colleges. It's called the enrollment cliff. And basically, around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, Americans started having fewer kids and they continued to have fewer and fewer kids over the years that followed. And as you get- Some Americans. As you, some, yeah. some Americans. Some Americans. Look, hey, you're, yeah. you're pulling full freight here for all split zone do LLC. I like a word with the Pope, please. As you get 18 plus years out from the time when Americans started to have fewer kids, uh, which is coming by the way, you can see the problem that develops for higher education. You have fewer 17, 18, 19 year olds. You have fewer potential customers. Uh, and at one point in the last decade, there were about 20 million students in American colleges. There are now many fewer than that, and there will be fewer and fewer for the foreseeable future. It's already starting to happen in parts of the country, and it's going to happen in more places in the next handful of years. And it could have, a, a, I think, a pretty profound effect on college athletics, including some stuff that you would see playing out even in FBS football, which we tend to cover quite a bit. So it's June. There's no better time to get into this sort of stuff. I have interviewed Nathan Graw. He's an economics professor at Carleton College in Minnesota, and he is one of the foremost authors and researchers on this phenomenon that is arriving now and, and in the next few years for higher education. So here it is. It's a look at this slowly unfolding crisis, if you will, that is confronting American colleges, uh, and it features some informed speculating for both of us on what that could mean for athletic departments. Richard? 
Alex, I don't know how much he goes into this, but I actually think this coming future, I think actually um, points at athletics becoming more of a, a bigger deal for the university side Maybe. because, you know, I actually, I actually spoke to South, uh, South to San Diego state's athletic director a couple of weeks ago about their final four run. And he was just like, yeah, I mean, enrollment just through the roof because yeah. you know, you're sitting on your phone, you're, you're watching San Diego state in a final four game. And you're like, Oh, what is this? University? You Google San Diego. <laughs> you, you Google San Diego, you listen to split zone to LLC, uh, you know, for whatever reason. And so, you know, it, athletics has long been the front porch, so to speak for a university that that's, that's a, a, a yeah. decades old kind of phenomenon. I'm sure you guys it. get into yeah. it. Yeah. And it's funny that San Diego state's athletic director framed it in those terms, because we talked about how administrators like to frame it in those terms. Uh, it is, uh, well, I'll, I'll just I'll let the interview speak for itself. Uh, but it's an interesting thing to talk about. Um, I, we do talk about whether, given this problem that is coming for colleges, if there might be a world where you double down on athletics as that recruitment tool. Um, maybe that's one of the things we don't know. But I thought it was a really interesting talk, which is why we're running it for half of this episode. Uh, and yes, somehow it does all come back to the Big Ten and the SEC probably getting stronger. I wish that I were kidding. No one told me not to have a bunch of kids. Roll tape. It's a great pleasure to be joined now by Dr. Nathan Graw. Professor Graw is a professor of economics at Carleton College, the author of several books, the most recent of which is called The Agile College. And I would say, Dr. Graw, one of the country's loudest warners, if you will, about what might be coming to higher education in terms of demography and enrollment and how many people are actually on college campuses it has been a big focus of yours. I think I would start in the, the most simple of terms. You have written and spoken quite a lot about something called the enrollment cliff. Sounds serious. What happens when we drive off that cliff? Is there netting or something to break that fall or, or what happens then? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alex. Yeah, the, the en enrollment cliff, I, I don't usually use that language because it does sound awfully scary, but there's, there's reason to be concerned for higher education. It really stems back to changes in fertility patterns that began at around the time of the financial crisis. So starting in 2008, we've seen a pretty persistent and deep decline in fertility so that by, for instance, 2020, we saw a number of babies born that we hadn't seen in 40 years, about 16% off the peak in 2007. So when we think about a decline in the number of young people for higher education, for those of us working with traditional age students, we get about an 18-year forewarning. So if 2008 starts this downturn, we start experiencing that on our campuses with declining cohort sizes in the year 2026. So we're getting kind of close, and that's why nationally more people are paying attention. Not all parts of the country have the same kind of fertility patterns. The Northeast in particular has had low fertility for a while, and so they're already in a period of declining cohort sizes is in part also due to some geographic mobility as young people move out of the Northeast and to some degree off the West Coast toward the South and the Southwest. And so we see bylines of colleges that are merging or closing or in financial distress that disproportionately come from the Northeast and the Great Lakes region because that's where fertility has been low for a while. By contrast, if we look out to the Mountain West or the South, both because of in-migration and because of higher fertility rates, those have been stronger markets, but the decline in fertility that we saw start in 2008 
was strong enough that even in those markets, we can anticipate some contraction in the, the size of the cohorts. You know, just to give you an order of magnitude, if you have a 16% decline in the number of young people attending college, obviously, as we change the composition of who's in the, the population, we don't necessarily need to see a decline of 15 or 16% enrollments. But in, in recent years, we've had 65 to 70% of young people, high school graduates, go to college the following fall. And when you have a matriculation rate that is that high, pretty much as the population goes, so too must go the, the population of people going to college. And so we're talking about a, a decline that's, that's fairly precipitous, especially given the, the recent history, like last 60 years, we really haven't experienced declining enrollments that are persistent. And so higher education is a bit concerned. So when were the salad days for higher education? Like when, when, was, when was it considered easiest to get people to go to college and, and things were booming the most? Yeah, it's been, it's been a long boom, actually. If you, if you start with the, the end of World War II and you go five years out, so you're looking at roughly the year 1953, you'd look back five years and you'd say, oh, we got more enrollments than we had five years ago. And in fact, you could say that for each and every year from 1953 until 2013. Every, every year you'd look back and say, hey, we've got more enrollments than we did five years ago. So it really has been up until recently, in some sense, salad days for higher. Now, there are other issues that we had to confront. The unrest of the Vietnam War era, the, the double depression in the 80s, you know, the, the downturn in stock market in the early 2000s, and so on. So I'm not saying that there haven't been challenges, but in terms of this enrollment pressure, we really don't have an experience to call back upon where we didn't have rising enrollments. And since 2013, every single year, we've seen a decline in those enrollments. And so we're already seeing pressures. Now, some of that has to do with coming off the Great Recession and then some different attitudes toward higher education, COVID, et cetera. But it's, it really is a disconcerting moment in higher ed right now as many regions are experiencing declining enrollments persistently for the first time. So- when things were good for 60 years or so, from 1953 to 2013, what are the things that American colleges started to do in response to that? How did their behavior change in terms of the way that they structured their budgets or their campuses or what have you? And, and I guess to preview where I'm going with this, in what ways might that be threatened now? Yeah. So I think they're, they're both causes of those salad days that are behavioral and also responses. So for instance, in my generation, I was born in 1974. There weren't very many babies born that year either. So we had the baby boomers and they were large in number, but then they didn't have as many kids. And so there was a concern that in the 80s and 90s, we would see contraction enrollments due to declining fertility, but it didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is in part that higher ed got lucky. That's probably the largest part. The returns to a college education went through the roof. Everybody wanted to go to college. And so especially adult learners started going back to get degrees and things like that. And so that helped support increasing enrollments, even as the number of 18-year-olds who were going on to college was actually in decline. But another thing that, that certainly higher ed did, and, and I would note, higher ed did prepare for those adult learners. There was work to be done to, to take advantage of that. We also achieved gender equity during that time period where before men had outnumbered women. And of course, now we've gone well beyond gender equity so that now men are in the minority. So there were, there were some things that higher ed were doing, was doing to attract new customers. In terms of how those salad days played out in behaviors, I think one thing that you can see is that higher ed 
at least in some institutions, had an opportunity to adopt less than best practices. I mean, we'll be honest that when when you are forced to, you know, really perform at your best, there are all sorts of things that you find that you need to tweak and, and pay attention to. But when you're not forced to be at your best, you might be a little bit more willing to accept less than best practices. And so in higher ed, that looks like things like in budgeting. It was quite possible for many institutions to sort of back out the budget. So they'd figure, what do we need? And then from that, they would say, okay, well, then this is the enrollment that, that we're going to have to pursue. When we have a declining population, it works the other way, which is well, how many students are out there and how might we recruit? And then what budget will that allow us to support? And so I think a lot of institutions are then struggling with that question of if we don't have the ability to just admit a few more students in order to increase revenue to accomplish the things we want to do, if instead we're experiencing declining net fee income, and now we have to make hard choices about what to cut, then all of a sudden we have hard programmatic discussions. And, you know, relevant for our conversation today, sports have been a part of that, both, both on the recruitment side, how might sports be a way to generate interest in our school? But also sports go up on the chopping block. And we've seen that over recent years with, for instance, wrestling programs becoming far harder to find these days. So the, the athletic program has always been a place viewed as both opportunity, it's a recruitment center, but also a potential cost savings when people are looking for places to cut. Just to frame it up so that I and everyone listening has, has some understanding of the peak to what you know a 16% decline off, off that peak in a few years looks like. How many people at max capacity are going to American colleges? I'm, I'm, I'm taking it tens of millions of people in any given year would be on a four-year college campus or, or a two-year college campus. Yeah. So if we look at higher ed as a whole, which includes graduate education at the peak back in roughly 2013, 2012, you would have had just over 20 million students on campus. And now it's something closer to 18 million. So it's a lot of students. That, that's a ton of, it still feels like a ton of people. It's funny, yep. but obviously it's, it's, it's fewer people. You mentioned sport cuts and that is something that we're really curious about. And one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, I don't assume that where this is heading is that Ohio State can't field a football team or exactly. Duke can't field a basketball team. But it also would seem extremely naive to think that if colleges are heading for an inevitable contraction in how many students they have, that that just wouldn't touch athletics. Yep. What type of school, and maybe you have to answer this first, just on, on main campus, outside of the athletics department, what type of school looks most vulnerable to you to have problems as this continues to take hold that there are fewer and fewer students going to American colleges? Yeah, that's exactly the right question. And it turns out that there, there have been some other changes in the composition of young people that are positive for higher ed. So for instance, importantly, the number of parents who have college degrees has increased in recent generations and will continue to do so. So the access agenda that higher education has pursued has succeeded and you've got more and more college graduates. Their children are more likely, it turns out, to attend college, to go to four-year colleges more specifically and to go to selective four-year colleges most specifically. So when we think about the Ohio States, the flagship, or we think about Duke, obviously, an institution with a lot of academic prestige, these institutions can actually anticipate that their, their markets will probably grow in the next 15 years at the same time that we're seeing this general contraction. And so then when we think about the regional universities within a state system, not the flagship, 
they're the ones that might be more likely to see contraction or the small liberal arts colleges that aren't ranked among the top liberal arts colleges in the country. And I think that that does raise some some real interesting challenges because it means that there's no reason to think, look, I mean, Ohio State and Duke also have so many applicants that even if you had a 10% decline in their pool, they're probably not going to see significant budgetary challenges. They might see a slightly more competitive environment as other institutions that are hungrier do some things with financial aid and try to woo students. I'm not saying that those top institutions won't feel anything, but they probably won't feel a whole lot. And moreover, their athletic programs really are critical to their recruitment. So yes, they're not going to cut their football programs, obviously, but probably they also aren't thinking they're going to be cutting women's volleyball or even their wrestling program because they, they don't need to. And even if they were thinking that they needed to cut costs, there'd be a real concern about a non-virtuous cycle where we cut the wrestling program and now we have even fewer students interested in coming because some of them were coming for that wrestling program. By contrast, those less highly ranked institutions are going to be under a lot of pressure. And so we could easily imagine some of them shedding some programs. But I, I still suspect you're not as likely to see this with, you know, imagine a regional university that it's not the flagship, but they've got 15,000 students on their campus. Well, they can still field a football team, they can still field a volleyball team. There, there's no dearth of students so that they can't run their programs. And because those programs are recruitment tools, both for students who want to play those sports and for students who want to be on a campus where they can attend events and experience the college atmosphere, they'll probably be pretty reluctant to be making program eliminations, but they might be under financial pressure that causes them to cut some corners. Maybe it means they can't pay their coaches as well. And maybe it means they can't, maybe their facilities become a bit more tired. They can't refresh their facilities and, and maybe the program is a little bit less flush. And insofar as some of those institutions are competing in the same leagues as those flagship institutions, there does come, you know, to, to be a tension there. I mean, leagues are interesting because of parity. We've seen that in the NFL kind of in spades versus in Major League Baseball, where where the, the way that the finance has worked in the NFL has promoted this idea that your team is always in it. Now, I'm a Bears fan, so my team is in it every year for about six weeks, and then, then it's clear it's over. But, but there's always, you know, every year there's that story of the, stu- the, the team that went from the bottom of their division, and now they're in the playoffs because of parity. Yeah, a little tougher in college football, for sure. Absolutely. But, but when you get to the point where the games are almost predetermined, who wants to really watch that? And so I think there is, there is a tension there, even in schools that aren't eliminating programs. If you, if you are having to cut the quality of the program to the point where the competition becomes a foregone conclusion, even more so than it is today with FBS football, I think they might find that they need to talk about, you know, what, what is it to be a league in, in new ways? And I think we are kind of seeing that, though the leagues are right now being oriented around likes, more or less. So you've got the flagships with the flagships. They're all doing pretty well. And then you have other leagues of, of teams that are, that are less well-funded. Yeah. One of the things that I specifically wonder about a lot as this decline starts to take hold is one particular mechanism of how athletic departments, including a bunch of them in FBS football, are funded. And that's the student fee that is unpopular, I think, as a concept, even though a lot of, a lot of people pay it with a smile or just don't think that much about it. But it's where you charge couple of hundred or even up to a thousand-ish dollars a semester to every student on your campus, whether they go to the football games or the basketball games or not, and that funds the athletic department. And not every school does this. You know, Ohio State, for instance, I don't believe does. Some of the, some of the big heavy hitters in football do not. But 
Bowling Green in 2022 got 52% of its athletic department's hmm. revenue, which was about $13 million from, from student fees. The fee revenue was $13 million. That's according to the Knight Commission. Alcorn State and HBCU playing in the SWAC and FCS, 18% of its athletic budget came from student fees. Even Rutgers in the Big Ten, 12%. North Dakota State, 5%, best team in FCS football. In Conference USA, the median median school in that league in FBS gets 27% of its money from student fees. It's a lot. And obviously it is directly proportional to how many students you have on campus. Right. That seems like a problem that might be intractable if you start to run out of students. No? Yeah, well, if half of your if half of your income is coming from these fees, and then we cut that by ten or fifteen percent, you could easily imagine a school experiencing a five or even a ten percent reduction in their athletics budget. You know, I, I think when we think about a five or ten percent cut, I suspect most administrators would say if you can't figure out how to f- cut five or ten percent, you're just not trying. So it's not like an existential threat kind of cut, but it is the kind of cut where you say, okay, I can figure out how to do it, but it comes with a consequence. It, it's not going to be. You know, there, there are budget cuts that happen and you say, well, you know, we probably pulled that off and nobody noticed. 15 to 20% cut in your budget is, is not that kind of cut. That's, that's a cut that people see. Now, and for anyone listening who's wondering who is the national champion of student fees, as of 2022, it was James Madison pulling in $46 million a year in student fees for the athletic department, amounting to 79% of a $58 million budget. So <laughs> go Dukes. It, this seems... You make the point that an administrator might say, if you can't find five or 10%, you need a better athletic director or you're not doing your job. Does it strike you as possible that if, if it's a fight or flight thing, that higher ed might choose fight, AKA, you know, that, that the response might be to simply charge more intuition or find find ways to squeeze more out of the students that you already have. Maybe you, maybe you have fewer students, but you charge a bigger athletic student fee. Directionally, I, I wonder if, if there's any sense of whether higher ed is going to pass on some of these, these seemingly inevitable budgetary changes that are necessary, or if, or if they'll change the way they do business. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of businesses think that way. You're an insurance company and there's a big storm that comes through and you think, well, I'll just try to recoup those losses by charging a higher fee. The problem is, unless you think there's some reason in that case to think that the cost of insuring these people has actually gone up, the fact that I took a loss doesn't mean that they're willing to pay me more. There's another insurer who's more than willing to compete with me. And I think the same thing will happen in higher ed. Because there are fewer students, we're moving toward a more of a buyer's market rather than a seller's market. And so there will be other institutions that are that are more than happy to take the full contribution from the student, whatever that is, versus a larger share of no student, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the competition. You can, you can increase your fee, but if the student says that I'm going elsewhere, then you get all of nothing. And so I think it's going to be difficult to pass a lot of these burdens onto, onto families. A lot has already been passed onto families, just sort of, we think about higher education financing in general, especially at state institutions, the public aspect of public education used to be a lot stronger. And so the state picked up a much larger share. For a long time, it was covering something like 50%. And then we get a, a recession and, and state funding falls a bit. And then we're looking at a third and then we get another deep recession. And okay, then state funding falls further. And so parents are already picking up 
a larger share than they did historically. And so I think it'll be difficult to just continue that without starting to see students changing where they're, where they're willing to study. Now, the flagships, you know, again, might be in a different spot. There does seem to be, not only do we see demographics shifting that way, but we also see preference that seems to be shifting. I know in my home state, this is true. The University of Minnesota is growing in enrollments while the sister schools, the regional universities, are many of them experiencing really, really tough budget cuts because of declining enrollments. So, okay, the University of Minnesota might pull that off, but then the University of Minnesota probably doesn't need to pull it off. They're probably doing just fine so they don't have to think about raising their fees. Whereas St. Cloud State, that's gone from 18,000 down to 10,000 students enrolled. Well, they might think, why don't we try to increase fees in order to recoup the losses? But it seems like that might just be a great way of shoving more students, students toward the University of Minnesota or one of the other sister campuses. Yeah, it's the concentration. It almost sounds resembling of like a corporate story or the, just like the way that the business world works. I do wonder, because you you make me think of it now, my Econ 200 experience was was limited and I was a liberal arts major, but it would seem that the enrollment boom that you talked about in the back half of the 20, 20th century and into the 21st probably drove a lot of why college got so goddamn expensive. And if that's true, it, it has to go in the other direction now. To some degree, it, it does. You know, so the, the return to a college degree tripled during the 80s and 90s. So it was already a, a relatively good investment. On average, it certainly was to get a college degree. And then it became an insanely good investment. And so, of course, if, if a college degree is going to set you up for life, in essence, and to a large degree, it really does compared to a high school degree, you're going to be willing to pay quite a bit of money. I think some of the challenges that higher ed faces are in the last 10 years, we've actually seen wage compression. So the greatest wage growth has been among those who have high school diploma only, and they've been, there's been slower wage growth at the top end of the distribution, which is those people who have degrees, which is all just to say that the college degree doesn't quite pay off as well as it did 10 years ago. It still pays off very well, but not as well. And that makes people less willing to pay a lot of money for a college degree. Another challenge is what's called boundless cost disease. The basic idea is just that the way we teach, I mean, think about coaching a football team. You have one head coach, and if we think about an NFL team size, you have 53 players. It's been more or less the same. You have one head coach working to train 53 players you know, throughout history. It's not like technological improvement can allow you to say, oh, now we only need one half of a head coach. No, you still need one to 53. And the same thing goes on in a classroom. We've tried a lot of online technologies and asynchronous things, and you could read books or you could watch DVDs back in the day, but people really still think the best way to learn is with about 25 to 50 people sitting in a classroom as students with, with one professor in the front. And so the lack of technological progress in higher education, while at the same time we're seeing massive technological pro- progress elsewhere in the economy, means that the returns to human capital have gone up. What you have to pay the person standing in front of the room goes up because they could do something else where productivity has increased. And so that, that just kind of naturally means that the cost of higher ed are going up faster than inflation as a whole. And so higher ed has really struggled with, okay, what do, you, what do you do with that? Because while incomes in the country as a whole have gone up considerably, there are some who still are just high school, no, no, no college. And we want to maintain access for them. And they're finding it harder and harder to come up with the money to pay for even a, a state subsidized education, much less a private education. So we've, we've got some real financial model stresses that have been with us for a while. They're not likely to go away anytime soon. And then we're laying, layering on top of that an enrollment crunch. 
what do you do about this if you're the president of a university? I have one <laughs> idea, which would be, which I know you've written about, which would be international recruitment, international recruitment, international recruitment. But can that, can that do the job? What, what else do you do? Yeah, I mean, international recruitment can do the job, though we just went through COVID and we're reminded that you want to be especially skeptical of international recruitment that is focused on a single country. When pandemic issues made travel between China and the U.S. difficult, we saw real challenges then with people enrolling from China. And so the number of international students newly enrolled in, in undergraduate programs and physically on our campuses fell by 70%. We, we didn't see a decline in enrollment quite that big because we were doing distance education. And so kids were sitting up in the middle of the night doing classes and, and so on, apparently. But even if you step away from those kinds of challenges, the, the one-off effects, whether it's a war or a pandemic, We've been seeing a decline in international student recruitment since the fall of 2016, largely driven by, well, I don't know about largely, but in, in part driven by an increasingly competitive international landscape. So we see the United Kingdom and Canada and Australia becoming much more aggressive in trying to recruit international students. And for that matter, India and China are building institutions to keep their students at home because they would rather educate them at home. So it's, it's not as easy as just flipping a switch. Some institutions will come up with a value proposition. They'll be able to sell this idea of foreign education to international students. And that will allow them to avoid declining domestic population. But I think it's going to take hard work. You can also look at the adult learner market. Now, we, we pulled that lever hard in the 1980s and 90s. It's not clear whether or not you can pull that lever again. There are an awful lot of people in the, the labor market, about 150 million people are in the labor market. Some of those people, I suppose, are 64 and they're not going to come back to college. But probably at least 100 million of them could potentially benefit from continued education. So can we reinvent ourselves into being an, an adult learner institution or at least creating programs serving that population? That's another direction some people are going. Some people are going hard after access, though I would say that's really challenging work when you already have 65 to 70% of students going on to higher ed. Some are targeting those people who went to college and then dropped out, the some college but no degree folks. Yeah, yeah. But they're hard to bring back because they had a bad experience that caused them to leave. So I think it's possible to imagine succeeding in that, but you're going to have to work hard to convince these people that this time will be different. It's going to be worth your time. One thing that brings us back to sports that I think of as, as you're talking about this, there's the front porch of the university theory about sports that some university presidents like to espouse that it's a great advertisement. You know, you see a football team or a basketball team and you might go to the school's website or think more seriously about going to that school. I think that I probably did that when I was in high school and it makes sense. And you mentioned St. Cloud State in Minnesota where you are dealing with a significant enrollment decline. I would have no idea that St. Cloud State existed if they didn't have a really good hockey team and I was gonna say. players in the NHL. So yeah. like- could Is there a world where perhaps this boomerangs in the opposite direction for sports that we're talking about? And you see university presidents doubling down and saying, well, damn, like we better have a really good football team this year so that people look at us and pay attention to us and maybe we can quell some of these problems. And I would note that I know the, the scholarship has not exactly proven that this works all the time, but I just wonder if, if yeah. that could happen or if that's crazy. Yeah, I think it does get talked about. I think you're right. The admissions folks say that you know, making a deep run in the final four, say, does yield more applications, but it's a, it's a pretty short-lived experience. You get a couple of years of a, of a blip, as I understand it. And so I think most people don't see it as a, a great 
investment. I'm sure there are going to be some cases where it is a good investment to double down on quality and, and try to create a buzz around that. Some, you know, there's almost no strategy where you say, oh, that never works. No, sometimes it works and maybe most times it doesn't. I have seen institutions, this is a D3 example, where they've added programs precisely to, to recruit a new student group. So for instance, you might add a lacrosse program because you recognize that that's going to draw a certain suburban student that you, you haven't been drawing in the past. And if you draw not that many students, you can easily cover the cost of a new program. So then the question is, okay, you know, it, it's an arms race. If we add a lacrosse program, we have to play other, other people. So presumably other schools are adding lacrosse programs. How long can we generate an additional return? But on the other hand, it's possible that we can recruit more and they can recruit more if what we're getting is, is students who ultimately might not have gone to college. But if you give them a certain college experience, they're willing to reconsider and attend. And so, so we do see some institutions thinking hard about other select programs that we might want to add. You mentioned at the top of this discussion that there's not geographic uniformity about how this slowly unrolling situation has hit the country and that it's already more noticeable in places like the Northeast. What is the medium to long-term outlook for that extending to other parts of the country? Are there particular states that seem like they are poised to avoid the, the so-called cliff? Are there some that seem like they are in more trouble than their peers? Yeah, I think I think it's difficult to imagine places that are not going to experience anything because the the low fertility rate has now spread through the entire country. Demographers refer to a replacement rate. It's 2,100 babies born to 1,000 women over the course of their lifetime as the number required to replace the population with fertility alone. Prior to 2007, the country as a whole was above the replacement rate and the Northeast was an outlier. At this point, there are no states that are having babies above the replacement rate. So we've seen a decline in fertility everywhere. But it certainly is a different experience when you look at, say, Denver and Colorado and Wyoming, where generally what you have is this upward trend in part driven by fertility and in part driven by in-migration. And then when we get to the mid-2020s, we see a contraction against that kind of long upward trend versus in the Northeast where you have this slow decline that then turns into a bigger decline. I, I think there are institutions who, if they've been paying attention in the Mountain West, will you know, not have maybe invested in facilities or tenure track lines, things that are difficult to get rid of. And they'll just have scaled up a bit in these next couple of years and they'll scale back a bit and they'll say, okay, this isn't, you know, we still have large enrollments. It's just not quite as large as it was. Whereas in the Northeast, the experience is most likely going to be experienced more as, gosh, we've, we've had years of decline, years of decline, and now the declines are getting steeper. The type of school that seems like it would be most in trouble would be in the places that have the largest oncoming drops of higher education enrollment. You haven't met, this is a college football show, so I must ask you about the, the American South. We talk a lot about the Georgia Bulldogs here because they've won the, the last two national championships. And an inextricable part of that story is that Georgia grew a lot. The state of Georgia grew a yep. lot in the last 20 or 30 years. And doesn't feel like a coincidence that Georgia became a recruiting juggernaut state as well as that was happening. And then you look and you can see manifestations of that on the field. What does it look like in the you know Sunbelt, in this case, the geographical Sunbelt, not the, the conference, you know, the maybe up, up the Carolinas, Virginia, 
because this is a region that, that we haven't really touched on in our conversation. You mentioned the Mountain West. We talked about the Northeast. I'm curious how it looks in the the most college football-y part of America. Yeah, it looks pretty strong. Strong, strong, good or strong, like big drop? Strong, okay. good. Yeah, strong, good. For the same reasons that we've seen people moving to Atlanta, we've also seen people moving to the Carolinas. You know, Charlotte is a is a very popular growing destination type immigration place. Nashville has grown. So I think if you look at the Atlantic Southeast, you you generally have a positive picture. A lot of that is driven by the in-migration story. When we look at Texas, we see in part in-migration, but we also see in part higher fertility rates because until recently, Hispanic families have had substantially higher fertility than, say, white or African-American families. In the 2008 crisis, we saw the decline be biggest, the fertility decline be biggest in the Hispanic subpopulation. They still have higher fertility rates, but the, the difference isn't quite as large. And so when we look at the Southwest, we're seeing both in-migration, people moving into the state, and the, the fertility gains. And you're absolutely right that these things matter. Because when we look at college admissions, about 80% of students pretty consistently are going to be in-state attendees. And so when the state of Georgia grew, the higher institutions benefited by having more potentially interested students. It's not that no Minnesotans are going to go down to Georgia, though maybe more than Georgians will come up here given our, our winters. But, but it's still very much the case that the vast majority of students are going to travel only a couple hundred miles at most to attend their college of, of choice. And so when you have an influx of people into the Atlanta area and into Georgia more properly, I think it's not surprising that you, you do see growth. Now, the, the very top athletes, I'm going to guess, are going to be far, far more mobile, more willing to go across states for the best offer. So homegrown talent, I understand from, from listening to sports radio, is, is always an important part of the recruitment picture. But for those very top programs, a little bit like Harvard, they have a national brand and, and they can draw students. I, I certainly know students leave Minnesota. I mean, we, we hear perpetually about how the University of Minnesota needs to do a better job of retaining the Minnesota talent that we get. So students do move around the country. And, and I think for the very top programs, especially, that's relevant. It all sounds like it could be somewhat reinforcing for the sport that we cover here. You mentioned the, the type of school that could shrug this off the most easily is the elite selective school, maybe the flagship schools of states, big universities. That sounds like most of the Big Ten or all of the Big Ten, which is rich. The South being in a, in a better position than everybody else sounds like the SEC. I have sometimes been accused of trying to make data fit my priors, so please tell me if this isn't the case. But it seems like this could be a rich-get-richer situation in terms of competitive disparity in college athletics. If we talk about the two conferences that already make the most money and and have the largest share of the elite teams now getting this demography bump as well. Is that reasonable? Yeah, to some degree. I mean, obviously the Big Ten is in a in a part of the country that's that is demographically depressed, but these are the flagships. And so I think they're gonna do okay. The SEC might be in a slightly better position because okay, those states are a bit stronger demographically. Oh yes, and they're also their flagships. I think in general you're right that there's a flavor of if things continue as they have in the recent past, you're going to have the rich get richer. I don't think the rich getting richer is necessarily problematic. I think if we look over the the recent history, we've had, yes, the rich have gotten richer, but it's been a rich market for higher education in general. And so all boats were kind of floating up. Maybe they weren't all floating up at the same pace. 
what I worry about a little bit, just thinking about higher education in general, but I think there's also an analogy to the sports situation is this two-tiered world where the rich get richer and everybody else is really struggling. When you have that very, very different experience, I think it plays out in, in ways that aren't great for obviously competition within sports, but it's also not great when we have a, a really fractured higher education network. I think one of the greatest strengths that we see in American higher education is its diversity. We've got two-year schools, we've got regional four years, we've got highly selectives, and they all speak to different student needs and wants and create different student experiences. And so as a student, no matter who you are, there's probably an institution not too far from you that, that meets what, what your needs are. As we see some institution types come under more pressure and maybe some of them cease to exist, we just got a mismatch problem. And I think there's something similar going on in the, in the sports world that when we have these two different worlds where one part of the world is doing really well and another part of the world is really suffering, having those two different divergent paths can pre- create real stresses on the system where when you try to talk about what's the best way for us collectively to move forward as a league or with policies, you'll find that you don't agree more often than not because you're just in these two different worlds. And that can make it difficult then to make progress. This, on the other side of this, the, the schools that would seem to be in the most trouble, would it be right to assume that these are schools that are, and I, I speak about this athletically, but I, I think there's probably some intertwinement between athletics and the general campus. The biggest trouble comes if you are relying heavily on student fees and you don't have a massive pool of applicants that you can use to cut against this decline in, in available students. Would that be fair to say? Yeah. And so the, the first institutions that come to mind would be small, low endowment, private colleges. You know, so think about a lot of your D3s. Those institutions don't have deep pockets, so they can't, you know, just dig into their endowment to deal with declining fees. In some parts of the world, like in the Northeast, they're they're just everywhere. So, you know, a lot of competition for very few students. And those institutions can't ask the taxpayer to just step up a bit in order to float them through a tough time period. After that, you might see some of these non-flagship public institutions where in states like Pennsylvania, they're talking about, you know, well, how many different campuses do we actually need or how many branches do we need? So, we might see some decline in opportunities for students to participate as those institutions either close or they decide, look, we can't afford to have a full offering of sports because it's just too expensive to offer. And so I think that that would be for me when I think about sports, the, the biggest loss I worry about would be participation at those D3 or, or regional D2 institutions. Yeah, I think those the top programs are, as you've pointed out, probably going to be just fine. They're not, they're yeah. not going to experience this. But I think the, the student athlete experience is an important part of many young people's college experience. And while they aren't necessarily vying for national championships that everyone's watching on TV, they're learning a lot on, on the classroom that is the playing field. And they're contributing to their understanding of their college experience. I mean, I think for a lot of college graduates, thinking back to your involvement with a sports team is a big part of what you think of when you think of your college years. And some, for some institutions, that experience might be a bit at risk. I also wonder about sort of the the middle of the sandwich in college football, the group of five in FBS football. So like the MAC and Conference USA, these these leagues where student fees might be a huge deal. It sounds less existential. Like maybe you can do what you were discussing about, all right, you know, we need a good athletic director in here who can figure out how to budget, but probably more of a hassle for them than for 
again, to use the Ohio right. State example, or, or exactly. even a step down to use a big flagship. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think that's, it, that's exactly the kind of diversion experience that I would worry about. Those, those schools are very much in the same league as, you know, Alabama. And when we think about technically they are indeed exactly. And, and so what does it take? What, what should the college football game experience look like? Well, we can answer that a whole lot of different ways. And we have historically over time and there are expensive differences in how you answer that question. And I can easily imagine uh, some schools imagining that the ideal answer to that question is a much more expensive model and other schools saying, you've got to be kidding me. We are, we are really feeling it and we're looking for ways to cut budgets and you want us to you know, add to, you know, maybe the infrastructure that supports camera work for the games. Like I, I get it. Fans like having more and more and more cameras, but this is an expensive thing you're, you're suggesting. And, and our, our campus just doesn't have that kind of resources. And the other members in the, in the group say, what are you talking about? You know, money is no object. So, you know, when, when, when our experiences are so divergent, we can, we can have some real challenges in coming up with, with collective decisions. Nathan, because it, seems like it won't be so obvious that there won't be a a blaring red sign that says the enrollment cliff has hit my school and now we're in trouble. I wonder if on your way out of the show today, if you could give some hint as to what it will look like or, or what a hint might be that schools in a certain part of the country or in a, in a similar station in terms of prestige or, or value proposition what might be the giveaway that they are starting to struggle with this? You know, I think enrollment is a great place to look. You know, obviously in the extreme, you have institutions closing. So in Vermont, for instance, which has had really low fertility, in the last 10 or so years, they've lost four of their 20 private institutions. They've just closed the doors. So that's the extreme case. And I, I don't think that's going to be the most common case. Instead, what you're likely to see, as you point out, is going to be a percent here and another half percent and then a percent decline in enrollment just piling up year after year after year. So institutions, ironically, might find it harder to respond. When we had COVID, we all responded because it just slapped you in the face. You couldn't not see it. Whereas when we talk about losing a half and then seven-tenths of a percent and then another half percent to enrollment year after year after year, there's nothing like that red line where you say, oh my gosh, we have to act and behave differently. And yet... Over the course of a decade, if you're, if you're down 10 or 15% in the number of your students, you really are experiencing tighter and tighter budgets. So it's, I, don't, I don't know that you're going to experience it kind of in that epiphany way. It's going to be you know, more the experience of after a decade, you, you look around and you say, gosh, I mean, I, things just aren't as flush here as they used to be. We are under a lot more stress. It feels like we've had a, a really tough go year after year after year having difficult budget conversations. And I think it's partly just being aware of the, the slowly ratcheting up competition and the slowly decline number of enrollments that will, that will distinguish. I think the schools that do it well will foresee what's coming and say, okay, we need to actually change how we're behaving rather than trying to tweak because at some point you just can't tweak and tweak and tweak. You, you actually have to make some fundamental changes if you're going to get through something like this. Dr. Nathan Groff, he's a professor of economics at Carleton College in Minnesota author of The Agile College and a great guest on our podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me.